Good to see you this morning. We, uh, I was a little bit worried when they told me they were making fountains behind us, that by the time I got up here to speak, I was just a little worried that the trickling sound of water might mean that I could only speak for 20 minutes, but no such luck, folks. They've, they've managed to make that thing so flawlessly that I'm able to be with you the whole time. You know, as part of this overflowing series, um, what we've looked at beginning last week was the idea of the one another's that really is prompted by Jesus and then carried out in the rest of the New Testament. Jesus models for us the kinds of one another's that he's looking for out of our lives. He occasionally speaks to it, but then he lets the rest of the New Testament develop the concept of the one another's. Uh, but uh, I think one of the things that is so good about what's happened by calling this the Overflowing Series is the things we're talking about last week and this week and next and the following week and in the podcasts and then a few other things that are going on around the church, the idea really is that you and I don't have anything to give in and of ourselves. All we have is that which Christ has flowed into us and that which he wants to flow out from us. And um, that has been really helpful to me because um, in my Christian life, I often come to places where I'm dried out. I come to places where I don't feel like I have anything to give. And at those times, I struggle trying to figure out what it is in me that needs to change. And really what it typically is, is I just need to remember that the source, the source of anything I'm to give, the source of anything you're to give, is Christ. And if, and if we don't first have what he gives us, we will have nothing to give anybody else. We can't pass on what we don't possess. And, and so this week and next, in slightly different ways, I'd like us to look at the idea of how we pursue peace with one another. How we pursue peace with one another. You know, it, it should surprise none of us that God, through Christ, calls us to peace with one another. In the Beatitudes, he says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Jesus is saying people who sow peace, now we can't make peace, but we can sow it. People who sow peace are like him. That's why he identifies us as children of God. If, if you're a person who sows peace, if you're a person who intentionally pursues peace, you're doing that because that's what a child of God does. Or in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50, Jesus says, salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And the idea of salt in us is, is really talking about the living the, the, the abiding life of Christ in us, that's the salt. It's as, the, as Christ abides in us, that is, as we speak things that actually come from him, as we do things that actually come from him, that's the salt. And it's interesting that Jesus ties together an effective Christian life with, with being at peace with one another. 
And I think it's very fair to say that the opposite is also true. That if I am not, if I'm not drinking from the, the life, the flowing water of Christ, I'm not going to be pursuing peace with anyone. We also see his peace in John chapter 14 and verse 27 where Jesus says, peace I leave you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let it be fearful. Here, Jesus makes it plain that the world attempts to give peace, but it's not like his. And, and many commentators say, and I would agree with them, that the number one way that the peace of Christ is different than the peace of the world is that the peace of the world is completely contingent on circumstance. You know, your health needs to be good to have the peace the world offers. Your finances have to be good to have the peace the world offers. You have to be at peace with, uh, you have to not have any conflict in your life for the peace of the world to operate. It's very dependent on circumstance, which isn't true about the peace of Jesus. So when Jesus says, there is a peace I give you, and it's not as the world gives, what he means is I'm giving a peace that is available in every single circumstance. That's the reason when I asked a uh, pediatric ICU nurse at UVA a number of years ago, as she was attending a, a, a dying child I was visiting. And I asked her, how long have you been doing this? Nine years, she said. I said, what made you go into it? She said, I don't know, it's some parts of medicine you just get drawn into and it's kind of like, I don't know if it's your personality or what, but I've never been able to do anything but want to be with these kids in the throes of a death and life struggle. And I said, what do you notice about families going through it? And she knew I was a pastor to these people, and she made the comment, well, I'll tell you this, it's night and day. And I said, what do you mean? She said, people, well, like this family, people who have some kind of life of faith, people who, where God is somehow real to them, they go through it entirely differently than the other people. They still weep, they still grieve, but there's something about them that is altogether different. And you can see it from one family to the next. We also see it in John 16, 33, where Jesus says, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus clearly ties together the peace he offers with tribulation. Not only is it not like the world's, he goes straight at it and says, expect tribulation, expect hardship, expect conflict, expect the fallen world to fall on you. But I've overcome it and I give you a peace right in the middle of it. Not only does Jesus offer peace, but we see his displeasure 
when we don't pursue peace. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 24 reads, You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, or whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, everyone angry with his brother shall be, angry before the, uh, shall be guilty before the court. Whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come, present your offering. Jesus finds fault not only when I hold something against my brother. He, by the way, he's not just talking about anger. There's a place for anger, and we'll talk about that next week when we talk about the second part of this. But there is a place for anger, but what he's talking about is people who hold anger against someone. It's anger that is ongoing. It's, it's anger they don't re- let go of. And yet they're attempting to continue to have a life with God. They're continuing to bring their offerings before him. They're continuing to attempt to have communion with him. And he's saying, don't bother. And not only is he talking about what I have against you, but even the other way, he says, if you go to the altar with your gift, but there find that your brother has ought against you, go be reconciled to him. Now, he's not saying you have that power to do both sides, but he's saying you go to make that effort. In other words, you make it your commitment to pursue peace or or he'll be very displeased with us. Jesus' peace priority is also reflected in several letters in the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 18 says, If possible, so far as it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. Notice that, as far as it's possible with you. That doesn't mean you're responsible to make both sides of something work. But it does mean that you are to be disposed to peace. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Or Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 where we read, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Uh, He's not talking about salvation here. He's not talking about if you don't pursue peace, you're not going to heaven. That's not anywhere in the context. What he's referring to is you will not see the life of God at work if you are not pursuing peace with all men. Because if you don't pursue peace with all men, you will not see the sanctification of God at work. That's why he says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You see, in the course of you pursuing peace with somebody, there's sanctification because God, you go and try to pursue peace with somebody and you find that you did something you didn't even know. You find you did something you didn't even intend. Well, if you have a humble heart about that before the Lord, you'll actually be sanctified, meaning you'll be made more like Christ. Or if you go to somebody and in the course of conversation, you forgive them, you'll be sanctified in that process. It is in the process of pursuing peace with people that we end up experiencing much of our sanctification. Why? Well, because the gospel is at the center of pursuing peace. We'll see a little more about that in a moment. Jesus 
We go on to Colossians 3, one more place, where the, in the epistles it tells us, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body and be thankful. And, and just think about that idea, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Why? Well, because Jesus says whatever comes out of your mouth is going to come out of your heart. So let me tell you, if the peace of Christ is not ruling in my heart, guess what? What comes out of my mouth is not going to reflect the peace of Christ. And it will not pursue, it will not pursue peace with all men. Peace is a big deal to God. I think it's a much bigger deal to the Lord than it is often to the church. In my life and in the life of other people I've talked to, literally thousands of times, I see us too often going on outside of peace when that was the very thing Christ came to give. I see Christians willingly going on without pursuing peace in an intentional way, not realizing what they're forfeiting when they do that. You know, it was so important to God that he named the city on earth that was to be his dwelling place the city of peace, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the city of peace. That's how important it was. The place where his name would dwell among all the cities of the world was the city of peace. In fact, it's so important that one of the names God gave to Jesus, oh, we, we read it every Christmas, right? And as, Isaiah 9, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's apparently very important to him. I believe that one of the ways that we as the church need to grow is to have a far greater heart for peace first as recipients and then as grantors because he only intends to give us that which he intends us to give on. Jesus never accepted me to just be a receptacle. He, accepted me to, he expected me to be a receiver who then passes on because that's how he works. In the counseling ministry, we are asked to help people find peace, sometimes with the Lord, sometimes within themselves, sometimes with other people, family members, for example. And we don't have any power in ourselves to do that, but we do know this. We do know that Jesus offers peace. We know he offers it first with us between himself and us, we know that one of the results of that is that then we end up being able to enjoy his peace within ourselves, and then we know that he gives it so that we give it for others, to others. I want you to listen to a part of a letter, a letter from a Chinese pastor. And, and the letter is not about peace, but it's a letter that reflects the deep abiding peace of God. And in a way, it's going to be a little bit of a bridge for next week because next week we're going to talk about a certain result of peace having to do with how we speak with one another. But this is an example of somebody at peace in the middle of a situation that's not peaceful at all, and it becomes a model for me. 
Pastor Wang Yi uh, wrote a letter for his congregation, and he gave it to one of his leaders and said, if ever I am detained for more than two days, for more than 48 hours, read this to the church. Well, three years ago, he was arrested, and he knew he probably would be. Um, his wife was arrested with him, as were a hundred other members of his church. Uh, some of them have been released. He is still in prison right now. Listen to his letter. On the basis of the teachings of the Bible and the mission of the gospel, I respect the authorities God has established in China. For God deposes kings and raises up kings. That is why I submit to the historical and institutional arrangements of God in China. As a pastor of a Christian church, I have my own understanding and views based on the Bible about what righteous order and good government is. At the same time, I am filled with anger and disgust at the persecution of the church by this communist regime at the wickedness of their depriving people of the freedoms of religion and of conscience. But changing social and political institutions is not the mission I have been called to. It is not the goal for which God has given his people the gospel. For all hideous realities, unrighteous politics, and arbitrary laws manifest the cross of Jesus Christ, the only means by which every Chinese person must be saved. They also manifest the fact that true hope in a perfect society will never be found in the transformation of any earthly institution or culture, but only in our sins being freely forgiven by Christ and in the hope of eternal life. As a pastor, my firm belief in the gospel, my teaching, and my rebuking of all evil proceeds from Christ's command in the gospel and from the unfathomable love of that glorious king. Every man's life is extremely short, and God fervently commands the church to lead and to call any man to repentance who is willing to repent. Christ is eager. He is willing to forgive all who turn from sin. This is the goal of all the efforts of the church in China, to testify to the world about our Christ, to testify to the middle kingdom about the kingdom of heaven, to testify to earthly momentary lives about heavenly eternal life. This is also the pastoral calling I have received. For this reason, I accept and respect the fact that the communist regime has been allowed by God to rule temporarily. As the Lord's servant, John Calvin, once said, wicked rulers are the judgment of God on a wicked people, the goal being to urge God's people to repent and to turn again towards him. For this reason, I am joyfully willing to submit myself to the enforcement of the law as though submitting to the discipline and training of the Lord. At the same time, I believe that this communist regime's persecution against the church is a greatly wicked, unlawful action. As a pastor of a Christian church, I must denounce this wickedness openly and severely. The calling I have received requires me to use nonviolent methods to disobey such human laws which disobey the Bible and God. My Savior Christ also requires me to joyfully bear all costs I would endure for disobeying wicked laws. But... This does not mean that my personal disobedience or the disobedience of the church is in any sense fighting for rights or political activism in the form of civil disobedience because we have no intention of changing institutions or laws of China. As a pastor, the only thing I care about is the disruption of man's sinful nature by the faithful disobedience and testimony it bears for the cross of Christ. As a pastor, my disobedience is one part of the gospel commission. Christ's great commission requires of us great disobedience. The goal of disobedience is not to change the world, 
but to testify about another world. Pursuing peace doesn't mean we don't have convictions. Again, we'll talk about that more next week. When I read this man's testimony, his faith in Christ is evident. Furthermore, his his confidence that his life is in the hands of God is very evident. He is so confident in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, sovereign over China, even with its wicked laws, and he will use it to manifest the gospel. That's what he says. But though the, world, the word peace is not mentioned, and he's writing this in anticipation of being in a prison, which he is still in, what is evident to me is the strength of the peace of Christ. He is able to speak truth to his captors, He is able to speak truth to the church. But he's at peace from God. And he ultimately offers that peace to others. I say all of this to illustrate how important peace is to Christ. But before you or I can pursue peace, we have to know peace. Real peace, the kind of peace that you can give to somebody, the peace that you can pursue to to make peace, starts one place. Romans chapter 3, God describes people who don't have a relationship with Christ, and this is what he says. The path of peace they have not known. See, in a church gathering like this, most of you have come to a place of knowing Christ. But some of you haven't. And so what I'm getting ready to talk about for the rest of the message about pursuing peace, if if the path of peace you have not known, it won't make any sense. There won't be any way to go give to others what you don't have. In contrast, we read a verse a little while ago from Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. You may remember it said, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the contrast? On the one hand, you have people who don't know Christ, and it says the path of peace they've not known. On the other hand, you have people who have come to Christ, the path of peace they've known. In fact, they have peace with God. Now, what we're going to try to focus most of our time today on is that some of us know the path to peace. But we're not pursuing it actively with others. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 17, the apostle writes of Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and to those who were near. When he refers to people far away, he was talking about Gentiles, people who are far away from the law, far away from the Old Testament, you know, far away from Jewish life. He's talking about people who are non-Jews. When he talks about he also preached peace to those who were near, he's talking about Jews, people who were near the law, people who were near God's word, who, people who already knew there was a Messiah coming. Well, for us, there are very few people in our midst who are Jewish, 
There are probably a, a few, but very few. And so when he says he came to preach peace to those who are near and far off in our day, the application of that might be those who are near might be people raised in the church who are under the teaching of the scripture. Maybe they had a parent or a grandparent who knew the Lord, but they never really personalized their relationship with Christ. And if you're one of those people, he's preaching the gospel, he's preaching peace to you who are near. But if you're a person without Christ who grew up without any real significant exposure to the Word of God or to Christians, real Christians, he's also preaching peace to you who are far off. But either way, whether you're a person who, as a person who's not yet a Christian, whether you're near to him and his word or whether you're far from him and his word, what's interesting is this passage in Ephesians 2 explains exactly what he did when he preached peace to you. It says in the very next verse, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And that is Jesus' definition of peace. Jesus' definition of peace, the first place of beginning is to have access to the Father. And I just want you to know, if you happen to be one of those people who doesn't know where you stand with God, the bad news and good news I have for you is that the bad news is that when a person is without Christ, he's much further away from God than he realizes or she realizes. Because, because the Bible says that all sin fall short of the glory of God, and the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death, and by death it means separation from God forever. That's far off. That's the bad news. The good news is that God says that Jesus was sent so that your transgressions, that means your offenses against God, could be nailed to the cross and canceled out against you. Meaning that because of Jesus dying on the cross, everything you ever did wrong, thought wrong, or might do wrong was put on the cross and by his blood erased against you for all who believe. And so the good news is, believe. He really does offer you eternal life today as a gift. And that's a remarkable peace. And, and my hope is you wouldn't leave today without it. It doesn't come by how you walk an aisle or when you get baptized or any of that stuff. It comes by believing what he said. That he came to give life. And that those who believe on him receive it. I hope you will today. But the majority of you know Christ. And many of us are like me a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, who when I was hurt very severely, primarily by one man, such that it ended up hurting our family greatly, it affected my livelihood, it affected my church, it affected... Uh, it affected so many things that Diane said it hurt her worse than when, than when her mother walked out and her parents were subsequently divorced.
And uh, this isn't before I was a Christian. I was in ministry when this happened. Had a young family. But I remembered three years later, someone was asking me about it. Somebody who didn't know the man. Somebody I, I couldn't gossip against the man because they wouldn't know him, so I wouldn't be injuring his reputation. But I was just sharing what happened. And I noticed that the same level of anger, the same level of pain, the same level of betrayal, the same level of hurt was still existent three years after the fact. As I was telling this person this, these things, I re-experienced it all. And after I left that conversation, I said, Lord, there's something to matter. As a Christian, I'm not supposed to be walking with that kind of pain still around and that kind of anger still around. And so I began praying for that man. And at first, it was just obedience. But over the course of the next week or so, it actually became something I, I actually wanted to do. I think that's maybe what a little of what Philippians 2 and verse 13 means when it says, God is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God was actually giving me his heart as I prayed for this guy. But what was interesting was that about a week after I started praying, I told Diane, I said, you know something weird in the last few days? I think a depression has left me. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I told her what had happened. I said, I'd been praying for him, but I said, I feel like a cloud is off my shoulders that I didn't even know was there. And so what I came to realize was that God not only calls us to obey him, that is to pursue peace with all men. And he not only shows us how to do it and gives us the grace to do it, but it's not just about obedience. It's actually about our good. It is about obedience so that there's not a, a blockade in the spiritual realm, frankly. Because when I hold on to bitterness against people, the Bible makes it plain, A, that Satan is given an opportunity in my life, and B, that there is an impact in the spiritual realm. The, the gospel actually gets inhibited from going forward because I'm still holding on to my grudge. Now, that's plenty of reason alone to obey him, to pursue peace with all men so far as it's possible to us. But he's so kind, he's such a kind father, that on top of that, he blesses us when we do it. Now, that's remarkable. By the way, speaking of which, I saw a movie Friday night. If you ever get a chance to do it, particularly those of you who have ever had any trouble with peace with your earthly father or your earthly father-in-law or someone in a male senior role in your life, it's the book, I mean, the movie, uh, Show Me the Father. It's remarkable. Remarkable story, all true, true story. It's really worth seeing. Uh, so, here's the thing. If, if you're a person who already knows Christ, or you just came to know him, in my conversations with people and in my own experience of not pursuing peace, what I've found is there's one common element when people don't pursue peace. When when you have a Christian, you have somebody who knows she is forgiven, she knows she has a home in heaven, she knows she is God's child, but she does not pursue peace so far as it's possible with her. There's one common element of every single story that I've been exposed to, and it's this. Those who do not pursue moving toward peace with others, even after they've trusted Christ, believe that their life 
and their rights are their own. And that therefore they have the right to hold on to their offenses. That was it for me. And it's been true for every other person I know who refuses to pursue peace, although they've been given peace with God. You can actually be forgiven and heaven-bound, but hold on to resentment. And in the process, you won't enjoy the trip because you're continuing to hold others in a guilt that God is not doing to you. Those who are at peace toward others from their side of the table are at peace because they know that when Christ was crucified, they were crucified with him. When he died, they died. When he was buried, they were buried. When he rose, they rose. These are people who identify with what Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, these are Christians who remember the gospel. They remember they had no righteousness of their own. They know that the sins of others are just various versions of their own sins. They don't want to be like that guy who owed $14 billion to the king and was forgiven his debt and then went out and strangled the guy who owed him $15,000. Now, $15,000 is no small amount. The offenses people have done against us are no small thing. But in God's economy, he's saying, I have forgiven you of more than I'm commanding you to forgive others. And I'm not talking about being best friends with them. I'm not talking about not dealing with sin. So hang with me. We're going to talk a little bit about dealing with sin next week. But what we're not talking about not speaking truth. What we're talking about is being at peace with them so far as it's possible with us. So the real question today is, where are you in your intentional pursuit of peace with all people so far as it's possible with you? I'm not asking if you're their best friend. Best friends require a common affinity. Best friends require shared perspective and and experiences. Best friends require a measure of trust. But being at peace with those who have injured us is not about intimate friendship. What it's really more about is, are you holding anything against anyone? Have you turned over to the Lord the offenses of others since you don't really have the righteousness or the wisdom to know how to deal with it anyway? Are you at peace with everybody so far as it's possible with you? God tells us, Christians, in Romans 12, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He tells us, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, declares the Lord. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The hard thing for me to accept, and I think a lot of us, is that when I have a lack of God's peace internally or I do not pursue peace with others, I tend to say it's because of what they did. It's not true. When I don't have peace internally or when I don't pursue peace with others, it's not what they did. 
It's what I'm doing with what they did. It's what I'm doing internally with what they did. My natural tendency is to say this is the natural consequence of what they did. Given what they did, how can you expect me to have any other attitude? And by the way, I would agree, it is the natural consequence. But according to the Bible, we're not natural people. Jesus died for the natural man. And when the natural man believes the gospel, she, he, he is no longer natural man. We're new men. We're new women. If I'm not at peace with somebody because of what they've done, it is because I think I have a right to hold judgment. I'm going to give us just about five things we can do if we find that we're among the people. And we'll talk a little more about it next week when we talk about how we speak, how we use our words. But I think there are about five things we can do if we find that we're not pursuing peace actively with somebody. What could I do to start changing my heart and moving in the right direction? Number one, I need to remember that the only basis I ever had for a relationship with God was my guilt and his grace. In other words, like Mark said earlier, I need to preach myself the gospel. Because the only reason I'm going to forgive somebody is if I'm going to forgive somebody when they don't deserve it is because I've been forgiven when I didn't deserve it. So start with the gospel. Second, apply Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. That's that one about don't judge unless you deal with the beam in your own eye. It doesn't say don't judge. It actually explains how to judge. There's an appropriate type of judgment, but it's not what we typically do. Deal with the beam in my own eye first. Number three, reread Romans 6, 1 through 11, and, and reread Colossians 3, verse 1 through 5, because in those verses I am reminded that my life is not my own because I died. I died with Christ. I've been raised to a new life. And if I keep holding on to things, it's because I think it's my life. But if it's really Christ's life, I'm actually inhibiting his life in me. Number four, release guilty people to the Lord. Tell him that he is free to do with them as he sees fit. He says in Romans 12, vengeance is mine, I will repay. If something requires repayment, let him do it. Fifth, or whatever number I'm on. Um, maybe it's what I already said to remember I don't really have the righteousness to judge this thing. I guess I've already said that. And finally this, ask God to make everything right and let me one day see his righteousness prevail. You know, a lot of times the reason we don't release someone to God when there's been an evil perpetrated is we really don't think he's going to make it right. Ask him, God, would you please let me one day see when things are made right? Remember, the Bible says Jesus makes the comment, if you ask anything according to my will, you have it. Well, guess what? It's his will to make everything right. He really is going to. So when you pray, would you let me see your righteousness prevail? The answer is yes, he will. So instead of me sitting around on my judgment as if I think I have the righteousness to pull it off, I can actually say, Lord, I turn this over to you. I don't know what to do. This is an evil. May I release the evil to you? 
but not hold it myself. I don't have the ability to hold it and still hold on to the gospel. We are called to be at peace with one another. We'll talk next week about what happens if the other person doesn't repent if we were to go to them. We'll talk a little bit about how we actually go to them. What I know is this. I am required by the gospel to take the peace given to me by Christ and to actively pursue applying that peace to everyone else and to do it for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. And in his kindness, it will actually come back and bless me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for calling us to peace. Thank you for having a means by which we can do that. Would you please strengthen our faith? Would you please help us to trust your word and to follow it? Would you help us as a church to encourage each other in doing what you have called us to do? Because we can't do it alone. I need my brothers and sisters to help me see what I can't see. And I need your Holy Spirit. I just need your Holy Spirit, even though he's in me. I need him to be at work. And I just ask you, Father, to do that, that we might be a place, really a place, a, a body of people at peace with you and one another. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.